uh, we've been studying through 1 Peter. And man, it's really challenging for us. And it's a great study, I think, for our church at this time. Peter is writing to believers. He is acknowledging that they are elect exiles, chosen, adopted out of this world, and yet they remain here at this time, aliens in a world that is not their own, ambassadors of Jesus. And as they live through this world, they are inevitably going to face some opposition, some oppression. They're going to suffer. But they don't live retreating from that suffering. They endure, they live on mission, and they do so because they have a living hope. A hope in Jesus that surpasses the circumstances of this world. That surpasses the suffering of this world. That gives them an understanding and a perspective to see all these things. And so we've been going through this, we're about, uh, this week we'll jump in at verse 7 in chapter 3, and so we're in this larger section, it goes back to the middle part of chapter 2, all the way through kind of the middle here of chapter 3. Remember, our Bible was not written with chapters and verses, this is one flowing context that we're reading here. But last week we see Peter specifically speak to wives, this week we'll see him speak to husbands. And so in some studies around our church last week and this week, we're looking at biblical womanhood, biblical manhood. There's some great opportunities even at 11 in the outpost. Adults jump over there. A great look at biblical manhood this morning. Wednesday night, two more options for you. Come back Wednesday night, jump in. If you, if you missed it, we, we gave child care, complimentary child care. So you get out on a date night if you missed it. That's sad, you have to pay for your own babysitter, invest in your marriage, uh, go pursue one another. But I want to kind of remind you of this context that we've been chasing through the middle, or since the middle of chapter 2. We see it in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Elect exiles live for the Lord's sake. And we're seeing this, again, in this context of submitting not to just just authority structures or good ones, but also submitting to oppressive, unjust authorities for the Lord's sake, citizens for the Lord's sake, servants for the Lord's sake, wives for the Lord's sake. Last week, We read in verse 1, chapter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter went on and said, Listen, don't just adorn the outward appearance and make it about you. Instead, adorn the hidden person of the heart, the transformational work of Christ in you, make it known. This is an imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, a submissive spirit to Jesus that would find life and hope in him. This is precious, very precious in the sight of God. But this week, verse 7, likewise, 
husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, too, live for the Lord's sake. Quick recap from last week, when we say for the Lord's sake, we realize that we're not adding to anything. We're not somehow living for the Lord's sake, adding even a percentage point to our righteousness or our standing before God. We're not adding anything. We're not earning anything. That's not what's happening here. God is not hoping that you can bring something to his table, that somehow he needs you to contribute. That's not what we're talking about. Instead, we're talking about worshiping in spirit and in truth. It is the recognition of who Jesus is, who God is, that would lead us in this very moment to bow the knee of our life and confess Jesus is Lord. He is worthy. It's what we just sang but with every breath, every action, every thought of our life in pursuit. Why? Because he is worthy. He's worthy. And so verse uh, 7 begins the same way as verse 1. Likewise. Likewise. Same again as what we see with the wives. And again, this context, not, not for the husband's sake, not for the wife's sake, for the Lord's sake. It's not husbands, likewise, submit to your wives. It's not really a back and forth. Matter of fact, when we see this word likewise really here and in verse 1, it's really more like and. We're continuing to go through these illustrations, if you will, these examples of living for the Lord's sake. The citizen, the servant, the wife, and the husband. And so, we, we see this begin to play out and remember our definition of what this means, this kind of submission to the Lord's sake. It is to live out your faith. Live out your faith giving. Giving, not, not taking, watch, giving submissive respect that emphasizes the honor of the earthly authority over our freedoms as elect exiles. Not over faithful pursuit for the Lord's sake to the absolutes that have been decreed to us, commissioned to us, commanded to us, but in our freedoms. We live out our faith giving submissive respect that emphasizes the honor of earthly authorities over the freedoms we have as elect exiles. Why would we do such a thing? It's a great question. Because you and I, as elect exiles, hold to a living hope that is beyond this world. What difference do those freedoms really make in the end anyway? Because in your very saving faith, you have acknowledged that all of this stuff left to itself is 
of no value. That you, left to yourself, only inherits death. But all life, all value, all meaning, all purpose, all hope is in Jesus. So let, let me say it to you this way. You have nothing over here. And you have everything over here. That's your faith. That's the way it works out. Because Jesus is worthy. It's who he is. And so when you really think about it, not in your sin, I know we'll act on those things, I know we'll, we'll fall into those things, but when you begin to wrestle with it through the lens of who God is, who you claim him to be, what value is that stuff anyway? And if you endure loss in those seasons, it's not worth comparing to what lies ahead. And so we live out this faith that gives submissive respect that emphasizes the honor of earthly authority over our freedoms as elect exiles because we hold to a living hope that is beyond this world. And in doing so, our testimony is different from the rest of the world. Because you know what the rest of the world is still living for? Themselves, their stuff, their things. It's all over here. But we know all value, all purpose, all meaning is in Jesus. And so our lives aim toward him. And as we do so, there's this incredible testimony that points to Jesus. A living hope, by the way, that is accessed through submissive suffering. Did you catch that? We don't like to think much about that. Let me say it again. A living hope that is accessed through submissive suffering. Now, if you're here, you're probably going, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought our hope, our salvation, was accessed through faith. Well, it is. Okay? But your faith is inseparable from suffering in this day. It, let me try to unpack it for you. Man, this, by the way, I hope you uh, have picked up some of the commentaries to study along with us as we walk through Peter. Uh, Tom Schreiner is one of those con uh, commentaries you can find on our website. He writes this on this subject. He says, suffering, in other words, is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they are called. It is God's appointed means for receiving the inheritance. Say, so what is it? What are you talking about? I don't understand what this means or how it has anything to do with this. It is the explanation of the connection in these likewise terms. It, it's the why behind it. And Peter himself draws this connection back in chapter two, immediately following his description of the servant who is to live for the Lord's sake. Verse 20 from chapter 2, read it. This is really important. It's going to help us a ton to have this foundational principle in our mind as we move forward into verse 7. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, 
you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That sounds hard. Now listen to verse 21. For to this, to live for the Lord's sake, as an elect exile in the midst of a world of suffering, for to this you have been called, set apart, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's a reference back to his submission to the Father. Likewise, for the Lord's sake, let me say it again, likewise, in faithful proclamation of Jesus' submissive suffering, likewise, identifying, identifying in Jesus' submissive suffering, you identify in it in your saving faith. See, I, I'm still not following, and I, I know it's, it's, it's kind of heavy, I get it, Let's go to Romans 8. Paul explains this in a really famous passage. Romans 8, verse 15. He says this. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then Heirs. I want you to remember that word. We're going to see it here in verse 7. It's going to be an important connection for us to make in the New Testament. So we've been redeemed, adopted into the family of God, and now heirs, verse 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You ready? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Heirs with Jesus proclaim life in him, death apart from him, life in him. Watch, here's what I'm trying to say. Here's what the scriptures are teaching us. Elect exiles identify with Jesus. Their life, their hope, all of it is in him. And not just in the kingdom to come. They identify with Jesus through saving faith in this very world. In this broken, fallen world. The same world that oppressed him. The same world that hated him. The same world that persecuted him. In saving faith, you do not just identify with Jesus in the future, in the kingdom to come. You identify with him now, presently. 
We don't wait to identify with Jesus. And so saving faith anchors us into his identity in this very moment, which means it anchors us into his suffering in this world. Our hope is built in that. It it is inseparable from authentic faith. Jesus understood this. By the way, isn't this good? Jesus understood this and John 17, as he's praying for his disciples, he says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Which world? The kingdom to come where everything is going to be perfect and easy? No, that's not what he's talking about right now, is it? He's talking about this broken world. The same world that oppressed him, the same world that hates him, the same world that's going to bring suffering. And in our saving faith, we identify with Jesus in that world. And if we identify with him, how do we think that world will see us, respond to us? But yet, we live with hope because we know what lies ahead. And as Paul said, it's not worth comparing to the world, the suffering, the brokenness that we're in now. But understanding all that will certainly change the way we live. Hence, back to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In an understanding way. Now, when you read understanding here, it is absolutely speaking in relationship to who God is. The definition of the wife is not personalized to her. It is revealed from the very revelation of who God is. In other words, in understanding is to be mm, in wisdom. It's to be under God's revelation as one who has been enlightened. We say it this way at Tri-Cities a lot. As one who is abiding the definitions, the lens in which they see the world filtered by the very word of God. It's not just understanding your wife like kind of personally and like what she wants. By the way, I'm going to chase a rant. Just give me a second. Let me chase a rant. This will be good. I promise. It's helpful. It's going to seem a little off at first. It's just important, okay? I just want to remind you of something. Wives are sinners. They are. Mothers, even grandmothers, okay? They are also sinners, All have fallen short of the glory of God, even our wives. 
What does that mean? Scripture says that their hearts are desperately sick. It means they deceive and are self-deceived. It means that even those who follow Jesus are not fully sanctified into his full stature. There is a great chasm between where they stand and Christ-likeness. See, why are you pointing that out? Wives, listen to me. I am sorry. Just as a pastor and as a brother, that men have grown so lazy, so apathetic, so scared of the growing pains of discipleship that they have ceased to admonish you, correct you, teach you, and encourage you in love. We have become a people who are so easily offended so emotionally self-focused, so easily discouraged that we are barely teachable. As a church, let us purpose ourselves to celebrate the effort of discipleship, realizing that it will be imperfect, Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about in a, in a sensitive area. Our pursuit of being a faithful mother, okay? There are bad moms. And there's not a mom in this room that's perfect. Every mom in this room needs to grow. You know that. You know that. But if someone were to walk up to you and say, you know what, there's this area as a mom I think you could improve. How do you receive that? So here's what we've exchanged. We've exchanged a climate in which we could genuinely try to help one another, teach one another, invest in one another. And we've exchanged it for something so shallow and superficial that we don't even believe. Because if everyone in your life just tells you you're great and no one, no one ever tries to teach, tries to help, tries to correct, can you even believe them when they say you're great? And it's so shallow. And the whole culture, this isn't just a women thing, right? It's not just a wife thing. The whole culture has embraced this type of avoidance, this type of passive avoiding of discipleship. become so easily offended, so easily discouraged that to speak into one another's life so messy, we'd rather just avoid it. And let me tell you who holds the keys to changing that culture, to creating an environment where someone can try, and even if they're wrong, you can say, you know what? 
They love me enough to try. I even disagree with them. But they're genuinely trying to build me up into Christ's likeness. They're not trying to discourage me. They're trying to help me. Do you know who holds the keys to that? Husbands. Men. Who've been set apart to lead their family, to have a value of God's word and truth. And so here, it says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Understanding comes from God's word. Men, lead your wives to pursue it, to love it. The way you engage your wife through the lens of God's word. You don't, listen, husbands, you don't take your cues from your buddies or from the traditions around you or from the culture or even your self-centered ambitions. You should take your cues from the very word of God. Live with your wives in an understanding way. As elect exiles that grasp that all value, worth, life is in Jesus. Husbands, such understanding isn't just instinctive. What is natural to you is sick, broken, and sinful. Understanding is an active pursuit. My favorite way of seeing that in Scripture is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote this, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. The beginning is go get it. In other words, pursue it, long for it. Don't think you've arrived. Don't settle for where you're at. Long for it. Husbands, if you love your wife, you will be in God's word because that is the source of your understanding. That's how you will live faithfully, lovingly, building her up into Christ's likeness. makes no sense for an elect exile to say, I love my wife and not search for understanding in God's word with zeal. Makes no sense. A loving husband longs to grow for his wife. Oh man, that tears me up. I recognize all the ways I am inadequate, all the ways I fall, all the things that are in front of me, all the ways in my life in which I am unwise, and I long to grow in worship to the one true God because he is worthy, but also as a loving husband who wants to grow for my wife, that I might speak with more love that I might bring more wisdom, that I might point her to Christ's likeness. Seek understanding. I seek transformational depth to be a more faithful source of that wise counsel, that sacrificial leadership, that meaningful encouragement, and even the loving admonishment. And so, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with them every day, 24-7, filtered by the truth of God's word. And you do this recognizing 
your wife as the weaker vessel. So what does that mean? Well, the context of everything that we've been going through in this section brings that into clarity. Here, all it simply means is they are physically in a weaker body. They're physically weaker. Now, listen, I've known some women that could beat up Paul Mermillion like that. All right? So, I mean, I know it's not always true. Uh, Katie's one of them, and so uh, we, we recognize that, th- that that's possible. But as a general practice, watch, we're talking about the oppression that can come because there is physical dominance. Nothing else here is communicated. So listen, wives, women, as you walk through this, there's nothing in Scripture anywhere, anywhere, that somehow speaks to you being weaker cognitively, emotionally, spiritually, nothing. The context here is this oppressive context. And it's around the idea of physical dominance. Now, as we walk through it, that's the specific context, but I wanna remind you of something in a general practice with our spouse. Physical dominance is not the only form of dominance that we can aim back to ourselves. I mean, we can hold finances or companionship or whatever else over our spouse in an attempt to elevate ourselves. All of that would apply. But in this setting, we're talking about one who is going to hold their physical dominance over the weaker, the physically weaker. And so Peter's talking here and he says, listen, husbands, you're in a position of physical authority. Do not dishonor and oppress your wife just because it's possible, just because you can take. I mean, I can remember I was in elementary school and there was this this kid and like, it's one of those deals, somebody should have checked that kid's ID. Because I'm certain, man, I was like seven years old, you know, and this kid's like 17. I mean, he is, he's got like a beard, he's coming, he looks like a pro wrestler. And dude, that kid used to just beat all of us up all the time. I mean, like all the time. I mean, like every day, he'd just like, just, you know, take our lunch money, whatever else. And you know why he did it? Because he could. He could. Men, Peter's saying to you, just because you have a form of dominance that you can take, that you can take, that you can exert, don't dishonor your wife. Choose submission. Here's what he's saying don't be a coward. Don't be a coward. You know how many testimonies over 20-some years of ministry I have heard from wives who broken with tears in their eyes will talk about how things aren't healthy at home, how things aren't healthy in their marriage. But their husbands won't talk to anybody. 
And if anybody finds out, then their husband kind of takes it back out on them. I want to remind you something. As much scripture that communicates for wives to submit to their husbands, there's just as much for men to submit to the Lord, for men to submit to the elders of their church. Husbands, if your wives are trying to get help for your marriage, don't be passive. Don't resist rebuke or correction from your elders. Instead, run into it. Go with them to get help. And in those settings, when you're sitting across from a group of men who would love you enough to correct you, you want to argue with them? Argue with them. Go back and forth. Work through it with them. But let me tell you what not to do. Don't just be passive and quiet and sit there and nod and then go home and take it out on your wife. That's being a coward. That's dishonoring your wife. That's looking for some form of dominance that you can use to make much of yourself. That's not submission for the Lord's sake. So weary of seeing that. And couple after couple, men, be an example and submit unto the Lord. Live for the Lord's sake. Submit to the leadership and the people who would love you, who would call you to be transformed and to grow. Model that in your home. And if you have a wife who just happens to be loving enough and brave enough to try to help you do that, by all means, do not take it out on her. You ought to love her for that. Cherish her for that. She risks for your sake. Don't be a coward. And don't say, I would never, Daniel, I would never do that. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be in that and then just rest on your instincts. No, pursue the truth of God's word that you might live with your wives, these weaker vessels who are physically more susceptible to abuse from takers, that you might live with them in an understanding way, giving honor for the Lord's sake, not taking in dominance for the sake of self. Can somebody say amen? I don't do that a lot, but you with me? These principles are less marriage-based and they are really more authority-centered. That's the context that we've been going through. And so you see that play out in all kinds of settings. I, I've served most of my ministry uh, in capital cities, so state capitals. Uh, in two specific states that are swing states, meaning the governors and the, the people go back from Democrat to Republican all the time. They're just constantly swinging. And here's what you realize. Whoever is the minority party, the minority party, they want compromise. Let's meet in the middle. Whoever is the majority party and they can take, they want submission then a few elections change and all of a sudden the party that was in the minority is now the majority and do you know what they've changed now they want submission and now the very party that doesn't have authority you know what they want they want compromise and to meet in the middle the elect exile should live with understanding beyond such things 
There should be absolutes that would cause us to live different, especially in our households, husbands, especially with your wives. Yes, you can selfishly, physically impose your will, but this is not your calling and this is not your role. Just because you can doesn't mean it's for the Lord's sake. Live, not for what is physically possible in this world, but live with an understanding as an elect exile that would point to something that is beyond this world. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Here says, you're, to the husbands, these wives, the, these women are heirs with you. They are not under you. In other words, your wives are equal benefactors with you in the kingdom to come. The way this is all going to end, they are just as you. We will share the same end. There will be no illusion of dominance in the kingdom to come. For they are fellow heirs with Jesus. This word heir runs throughout your New Testament to communicate this. And I could teach on it, but I just think it's more powerful to read it to you. So I want to read you a few verses, and I want you to see the connection to this. And so what you're going to see in this is the equality and what it means to be an heir in Jesus. You're going to see the end. So all these aren't exactly to wives or women to men. Some of these are poor to rich or nation to nation. I want you to read through it. Let it just kind of hit you. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Titus 3, 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Probably most explicitly is in James chapter 3, verse 6. I'm sorry, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. No partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Back to Romans 8, I'll remind you again, verse 14, what Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Heirs with God, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified for him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Living with the understanding of who God is and what it means to be an elect exile. It goes on and says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We're out of time, so here's the point I just want to make very quickly. Husbands, be reminded Defiant pride hinders God's blessings. Defiant pride hinders God's blessings. As the team comes up, I just want to kind of give you a quick review of all this we've really kind of hit for this chapter that runs from the middle of chapter 2 through the middle here of chapter 3. Elect exiles live for the Lord's sake. We live for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Citizens, for the Lord's sake. Servants, for the Lord's sake. Wives, for the Lord's sake. Husbands, for the Lord's sake. Why? Because we identify with Jesus in saving faith. Not just in the glory that is to come, but right now in this world. We identify with him as savior. As king, as Lord. We also identify him as the suffering, sacrificial love of God who lives his life for the Lord's sake, for the sake of the Father. He is our example in whose steps we follow. And so a few big ideas as you leave. Honor human authorities. What value is it to you anyway? Isn't that what Jesus said? Give Caesar what's Caesar's. I mean, really, what's this little trinket with this little dude's face on it mean in the eternity of things? What difference does it make? If you identify with Jesus and all life, all value, all worth, all hope, all those things are in him, what difference does that make anyway? Honor human authorities as a testimony of the transformational work of Christ in you. Next, endure suffering. Persevere through suffering. Count it joy to be identified with Christ Jesus in suffering in this world. Because you know 
it does not compare with what lies ahead. Third, follow Jesus' example. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When, with your conduct, may your conduct be a powerful proclamation to all those who would see, especially in your own household. And finally, live out God's revelation. Live with one another in understanding of who God is. Love, with, love one another out of the overflow of the teaching of God's truth that is on full display in the word, Christ Jesus, our example. Live out God's revelation. I'm going to ask you to continue in a time of worship and move into a season of prayer and song. And as you bow your head and as you pray, I want to remind you of something. Husbands and wives, your marriage is a picture of the gospel. Wives, your submissive honoring, a picture of the church. Husbands, your sacrificial love, a picture of Jesus. The conduct, the testimony of your marriage isn't ultimately about you. Instead, even this incredible union instituted before the fall of God points back to the love of Jesus. And so as we sing this song and move into a time of response, be reminded there is coming a day that is beyond the suffering of this world. There is coming a day where our hope will be manifest. A celebration of a beautiful wedding. The hope and the life and the joy that is eternally bound in Christ Jesus. As we sing Make the song a time of response. Be reminded we live for the Lord's sake and he is worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.